in the name of the God who sees. Amen. Please be seated. It's glad to be, it's good to be back with you all this week. Uh, I went to New York City last week to see art with Melissa, who is a real live artist. Have you ever gone to an art museum with a real live artist? <laughs> Entering a building that is the size of a city block with painting after painting, um, I'm giving away myself here, but they all start to look same after the first couple hundred of them. Unless you have someone next to you saying, look, look at this. Here's why it's important that the Dutch started to paint death pre-Renaissance. All right, look over here at Rembrandt and how he paints the, his beloved wife into all of these scenes, even after her death. Um, you look over here and you see this guy's dirty feet, the placement of the finger in that book that he's holding, the eyes a little off-axis. It's suggestive of things. Here's who they were painting for. Here's why it matters. And meanwhile, Melissa gets to go through museums with a real live priest. And I get to stop at the big paintings of the desert landscape where this, this tiny, minuscule Hagar figure in the corner. And I get to tell her the story of Hagar. She is well-loved by artists for the desert landscape, but I think she should be loved for different reasons. You know the story of Hagar? Uh, Abraham and Sarah are childless, and so our forefather Abraham sleeps with the Egyptian slave Hagar, and she conceives. Sarah is furiously jealous of Hagar and sends this defenseless pregnant woman out into the wilderness to die. Now, what happens next is unprecedented and unrepeated in Scripture. The Lord comes to her, and Hagar names God, names God El Roy, the God who sees. We get this singular instance of someone seeing God, and that's what she says. Have I really seen God and lived? This woman sees and names God. Much more scandalous than the paintings. There are things like this all over the Bible. Things that don't fit. That jut out irregularly. Like, despite all of the patriarchal systems and the insistence on chosenness of a specific people and those uh, obsessions with purity and the repeated declaration that no one sees God and lives... Someone like Hagar gets into the canon. The God who sees. The God who sees everyone's side of the story. Not just the protagonists, not the ones that we expect to win. So think back uh, before this seven-month-long gospel reading that just happened. Back, 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 refresh your minds to the Old Testament when so long ago when we heard the story of Samuel anointing David. Israel wanted a king. Samuel sees Saul. And Saul is described as the best-looking and tallest guy in the country. Tall privilege or something. 
Samuel tells Israel, look, have you seen anyone like this guy anywhere in all of Israel? No, they haven't, so king he is. Saul messes up, as you know, and then the story goes. Nothing too remarkable, actually, but God's response is remarkable. God feels regret. Says, I can't believe I chose this guy. What a mistake. Remarkable. I mean, you can't get much further from the passionless, unmoved mover of Aristotle. Samuel grieves for Saul because Samuel thought his vision was right, that he had seen the king. Our translation here this morning for the Old Testament is a little off, but Samuel tells, uh, God tells Samuel in our reading that he has seen for himself a king among Jesse's sons. Seven sons are paraded before Samuel, seven being the number of perfection, of completeness, right? But none of them are the one. It was the eighth son, the youngest, the one who Samuel couldn't even see. That was the one who God saw. But David's own sight will do him in, too. You know the stories. He becomes king. And in this king who has everything he could ever want, commits adultery and murder to obtain a woman that he sees bathing on a rooftop. The man after God's own heart is what scripture calls David. And yet his vision cannot be trusted. And by this time in the scriptural narrative, you may start to think, well, then just whose vision can be trusted? If it's not the forefathers or the foremothers or the prophets or the people that God explicitly puts in power or the people who are after God's own heart, whose vision is it? This is a very good question to ask in the life of faith. Test everything, Paul directs us. Hold on to what is good. What we've received, what we hear, the visions of our very own must be sifted through. It's not the easiest way. It's not the way I would expect or even prefer God to act, to be honest. You think about our 26.2 mile long gospel today. Jesus doesn't come along and heal blindness forever. One man born blind finds his way. Jesus doesn't reconcile all the world with the Jews. One Samaritan woman came to believe last week. Death won't be undone for our friends next week. Just for one man, Lazarus. This isn't what we would call a very effective program for change. We want something bigger. We tend to put all of our many hopes into one basket, and the basket inevitably breaks with the weight of them. These isolated incidents of Jesus' work, of God's work, sound strange to us. With, nation, with our own sense of national systems of health care, vaccinations, 
in order to eradicate all diseases. Even more, on a personal level, with committees to impress. Our status, our brand, with the ever-growing numbers of friends or followers, and the global or national or even regional celebrities of ability or look, prestige or influence, whether it's in medicine or law, politics or art or, you know, preaching. Jesus works on such a small scale. Wendell Berry writes in a recent essay uh, entitled Less Energy, More Life um, about, this ma- about the massive impoverization of people in the land through these systems of industrialization. And he says that people, he says this, people of religion have generally entrusted questions about economy, economy, about economy in the bigger sense of how we live to economists and industrialists. Environmentalists, on the other hand, seem to think that problems caused by technology can be solved or controlled by more technology or alternative technology. People of both kinds seem to think that big problems have big solutions. Both are mistaken, he says. If, we're, if we are serious about these big problems, we have got to see that solutions begin and end with ourselves. I think this sounds something like Jesus. I think this sounds like scripture. The way that God has shown that God works in the world. Pointedly. But restoring our fo- focus to the community in which we live. It sounds strange to us. I think that's a hint that one is leaving the world's way of seeing. To follow Jesus is to open our eyes to the world right around us, the ones on the blurred edges of our imperfect visions, to the forgettable earth beneath our feet. What a load off of us, too, to begin to think this way. The savior of the world, the maker of all that is seen and unseen, came and healed one single blind man this week. And through this, we pray that our eyes are opened to the world around us. Dispensing of the two instinctual reactions of throwing up our hands in hopelessness. Or worse, continuing in our own unquestioning sense of self-righteousness. May your story be seen in something as singular as your neighbor, one piece of art, one page of a sermon. If by some bizarre circumstance the words that I say may survive into the future, even then, some real live theologian would have to be alongside the reader saying, she lived in this time, she spoke to these sort of people, this is how she saw, this is why it mattered. But right now, our words are alive, right here in this room. The work of God begins and ends with ourselves.